Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, welcome everyone to the table, whether you're here at beautiful Mill Street House or anywhere that you're gathering us around the world via our podcast. We're glad that you're with us. We are in the middle of a series entitled, Why Did Jesus Have to Die? Why do we need a Savior? And we've been basically tracking our way through the early parts of the book of Genesis as we've kind of um, begun to tie together or unravel, maybe is a better way to put it, unravel some of the strings that connect these early stories in the book of Genesis. And we began a few weeks back with how sin entered the world. If you remember in the story of of the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden, we spent a lot of time talking about and setting up the tone for the rest of our discussion by giving ourselves a definition of how we were going to refer to and consider sin. And it was probably a broader definition than many of us who grew up in the church, um, or even those of us who didn't, may have about that idea of sin. What was our conclusion? What is the way that we here at the table want to um, consider this idea of sin? What is sin? What was the phraseology that we used to define that? Anybody remember? Something that breaks shalom. Right? So we had that idea of shalom. So the thing, shalom being that sense in which when God created everything, he created it exactly the way it should be. People were in right relationship with him, with each other, and the world around us, right? So that shalom is what he intended for us. So sin, we said, is the culpable, that was the big hard word to remember, the culpable breaking of shalom. So what does that mean? What does that mean to us, the culpable Breaking of Shalom. Anybody? We are culpable, meaning we are guilty. So culpable means, yes, it has this idea of guilt. It has the idea that we are responsible Mm -hmm. regardless of whether we intended to or not, right? This doesn't have to do with intention. I said this morning in the earlier table that uh, when I was recently driving over Thanksgiving up to our little fun place we like to hang out at Oklahoma and Sulphur, Oklahoma, I got off Interstate 35 onto Highway 7. So it's a six-lane interstate going onto a six-lane wide, three on each side, Highway 7, get off the exit, and I'm cruising it probably 65 to 70, coming off of 75, right? And I make that corner, and sure enough, right there, apparently 100, about 100 yards or so from the exit, it goes down to 55, and there was a cop sitting right there, pulled me over, whoop, 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 right? I pulled into the place. He comes over there, and he said, uh, do you know why I pulled you over? I said, well, I assume I was speeding, but I didn't recognize that it so quickly went from 75 to 55, like in that small little gap, right? I, didn't even, I wasn't even aware of that, and I've driven here a lot. And he looked at me, and he said, what difference does that make? Huh went back and I thought he was going to write me a ticket, but thankfully he just wrote me a little, uh, a warning, but meaning it doesn't matter whether you knew you were blowing past the speed limit, you were still culpable because you were, you were speeding, right? So you're responsible, right? So anything that destroys, that we do, that destroys that relationship, the way God intended things to be is sin. That's right relationship with him, each other, and the part we often leave out and the world around us. We can sin against God's creation. Anybody see the video this week? If it weren't so sad, it would be funny. 
There is a tractor with one of those big arm, what do you call those, excavator, sitting on top of a bridge. The water is obviously flooding. There's a pile of plastic and garbage. And there's a guy who is running that thing, and he's literally scooping up garbage from the, what what you call that, the upstream side of of the river. He's scooping that up, and then you follow it, and he brings it over, and he dumps it on the other side of the bridge. Because it was getting going to get caught on the bridge. The water level was so mm-hmm. high that it was like mm-hmm. getting stuck there. So yeah, we just if you went through the hassle of <laughs> scooping it out, wow. why wouldn't you then put it, like, put it into something other than back down the river where it's going to end up out on that literal continent that's being built out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that has tons and tons of plastic, right? So we can sin also against creation, right? Last week we looked at how that sin then spread... Throughout humanity, we didn't look closely at the Cain and Abel story, but we recognized that story. We got all the way to the flood, and at that point, 1,600 years after Adam and Eve were put out of the garden, God looks at his creation, and what does he say? I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed? What else did he say? I'm sorry, I grieved, I'm saddened, I regret that I even created this, and therefore, his resolve was to do what? I'm going to start, I'm going to wipe everything out. But then there's like a little pause in the story, and he goes, but Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. So you have this picture of, oh, in the midst of that, I'm not going to destroy everybody. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives are spared, right? And when we left our story last week at the end of chapter 8, beginning part of verse 9 of chapter 9, God had spared that family. The, the, the flood had receded. They're out. And God make, immediately makes a covenant again with Noah and his sons, his descendants. Does anybody remember what mandate he gives them when he lets them, turns them loose again on his newly formed creation? Does anybody remember what his mandate was? I'll give you a hint. It's the same mandate he gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. Fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply and? Fill the earth. Fill the earth. And now we know this story, right? We know how this story progresses. Chapter 9, he sets up that covenant. Chapter 10 gives us this, what we call the table of nations, that kind of strange chapter that just has a listing of all the nations in the world that came out of, um, that were a product of Noah's sons. And then we know the story that they understood God's promise, they understood the covenant, and they went and they did exactly what God commanded them to do. Right? Y'all are looking at me. For those of you on podcast, they're looking at me like, have you lost your mind? No, that's not what happened at all, right? So we're literally now, as we jump to this final story, remember we said there were five stories, each one of them had that common theme. There is some sort of a of a um, a rebellion followed by a response from God. Then there is a judgment, and finally there is a merciful act at the end. We're at the last of those five stories when we turn to Genesis chapter eleven, and that's where we'll be tonight as we continue on in our study. Genesis chapter eleven, and we're going to look at the first nine verses, and then we're going to jump from there as well and consider a couple of other things. But we're going to break it down into parts. So if somebody would, now, um, you're going to be reading chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, preferably from the common English Bible, the CEB. For those of you listening, that's our, our Bible that we use here around the table, the CEB. Let's read the first 
four verses, and I want you to be listening, listening for echoes or threads that you see in these four, first four verses that perhaps we've seen in earlier parts of the story that we've looked at. In other words, the first nine chapters. That's what you're listening for. Listen for some of those commonalities, those threads, some of those echoes, all right? Somebody read the first four verses. All people on the earth had one language and the same words. When they traveled east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them hard. They used bricks for stones and asphalt for mortar. They said, Come, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky, and let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't be dispersed over all the earth. So what are some of the echoes from that text that we pick up? Some of the threads, maybe, that should remind us of parts of the story that we've already considered. What do we see? Those four, first four verses. Well, the last part, so that we won't be dispersed over all the earth. God's command was to fill the earth. Mm -hmm. Repeated twice, yes. right? So obviously we see there's a contrast, right? Mm -hmm. In that sense, all right? A lack of willingness to do that thing. What else? I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but there's a lot of let's, like... Let us? We're, we're in control. We have power. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. And that mimics that kind of, that kind of uh, echoes, a better way to better say echoes. The words, let us make man in our image. Let us go down. Let us make sure, right? So they're like, oh... So if God feels that way, we're going to mimic some of that same language, right? I think we're intended to see and make that, that connection. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Have you seen the other connections there? Any other echoes or threads that you see through there? Looking at those four first, first four verses? So I'm really stuck on this, let's make a name for ourselves, yeah. but I don't know where that relates to anything that we've seen in the past in the book of Genesis, but, but that's like, okay, this is not what God wants you to do, make a name for yourself. Yeah, that, in fact, what <laughs> makes probably what you're referring to is it stands out to you because it's not present mm -hmm. for the very reason that it's not present in any of those going... That's such a predominant part of this first four verses, and yet it's really never part of the, that content at all, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly, yeah. So, um, interesting, a couple of things I'd like to, note, uh, to ask you about this, and then make a couple of notes. Um, what do you think motivates the people to then go and design mm -hmm. and want to build this tower? What can we... What can we Assume that's a dangerous word. What can we what can we deduce from the text as, as the reason? Okay, so pride. Explain what you mean by that. Is that picking up with your earlier conversation about let feel us like feeling feeling powerful and in control and let's you know draw attention to ourselves. So certainly. What else? What seems that like God put them on a planet that or, you know, a creation, a world that he had designed, and they want to, like, break it over. 
Ooh, I like that. <laughs> Pave paradise and put up a parking lot. <laughs> well, they're supposed to scatter to the world and become fruitful and multiply. They are basically making this to contain all the people. They're like, we want everyone to be in one single place. Yeah. We're going against God's law here. Yeah, you absolutely, you don't build an edifice like this, one that's described as going all the way into the heavens. If you're planning on like, see ya. Yeah, we'll come back and visit you sometime. No, you're, you're, in fact, they say that, right? It does say yeah. that specifically in the text, right? God's command was what? Be fruitful and multiply and? Yes, fill your scatter and go amongst the earth. And so it's like the picture here is in one generation. It's about 120 years. So that's one generation. Remember, before this, before the flood, eight, 900 year lives. But one of the judgments after the flood is you'll live between 100 and 120 years, right? So you have one generation here, one generation. And they're already like, okay, we're going to make our way to fill the earth. And they get as far as this plane of Shinar. It's not Shiner for those of you who are in Texas. <laughs> I'll leave that reference alone for you podcasters. It's not Shiner. It's the plain of Shinar. And Shinar is later known in history as Babylon. So you have this interesting piece here where right out of the beginning, you get, this, you get these people stopping in the general region where ancient Babylon was located. Right? And there's a huge play on words. This Babel, the confusion of tongues that we're going to look at a little bit is a play on words in the Hebrew text here. And this tower historically then became the center of the ancient city of Babylon. And if you don't know this already, Babylon becomes this um, symbol, I guess is a good way to say it, a symbol of everything that is in opposition to God and what God wants. So when you hear and you trace the idea of Babylon, Babylon is the anti-God. It's the anti-Shalom. It's everything the opposite of the way that God wanted to be. So by the time you get to the book of Revelation and you hear things like the king of Babylon and Babylon and this and that, it's referencing the big picture, right? The symbolic picture of this is what it's like when you rebel against God. You're Babylon. You are standing up on your own. It's man-centered. It's the worldly system that stands against God. So I wanted you to note that. And secondly, take a look at verse 3 for a moment. Because I asked you about the purpose of the building of the tower. And we talked about pride and rebellion and a willing, uh, lack of willingness to go and be obedient to what God had asked them to do. All of that is true. But read again verse 3. Somebody read verse 3 again. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them hard. They used bricks for stones and asphalt for mortar. Bricks for stone and asphalt for mortar. Mortar. Interestingly, we might misunderstand this. That's typical building materials, right? You would think of a brick, mm -hmm. and then the asphalt would be for connecting the bricks together. Again, I think maybe this is a little bit of an unfortunate translation that might hide a little bit of the beauty and the, and the, I guess the beauty, the bigger picture here, because it's the exact same word translated here as asphalt that was translated tar in Genesis chapter 6. So when Noah has been commissioned to build the ark, he takes the wood and then he uses the pitch or the tar between the wood and what's the purpose of the pitch and the tar in the building of the ark? We don't need boat builders here. But yeah. It's waterproofing. 
right? Mm -hmm. So you want to put this down. So they're going to build a building mm -hmm. that's waterproof. It's the same word, by the way, used later on in the book of Exodus to describe the little mini ark that Moses' mother put him in and sent him out the river. Same word. But here it's translated asphalt. So what does that tell us? How does that inform our understanding of what's going through the mind they of They want to be these prepared people? for another flood. And why would they want to be prepared for another flood? Hadn't God specifically promised in a covenant that he would never ever do that again with mankind and with all of creation? They don't trust God. They know they do not trust. That's exactly right. They and do they not trust. They know. They're doing wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do what? They know they're doing wrong. So that's an interesting point. They knew. <laughs> they know that what they're. I hadn't thought about that. They know that what they're doing is as wrong as what was happening before the flood. So they're expecting the same result. I guess that's possible. And now they think that. Um, now that they think that this has happened, their response is: We're going to build something that's going to be waterproof. That's going to stop us from being flooded out. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? That we would miss that little piece, right? If we didn't just dig down a little bit. They lack of trust, disobedient, maybe even as much as knowing how bad they are, that it's equally as bad as it was before. And it's almost like a challenge to God, too. They're like, okay, well, we know one of your big tricks of how to take care of us, so... We're prepared for whenever you try to do this again. So if we, if we, if somebody came up to you and said, "Was it wrong and sinful for them the the very act of just building a tower? Was that in and of itself sinful?" How would we describe that then? If it wasn't that, what was it? Yes, it is because the reason it's the reason behind why they're building mm -hmm. their intentions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's this the cause and the symptom kind of a thing, right? Yeah. That. If they if they didn't think that they were doing something wrong and they had full faith in God, then there was no need to build a tower. Correct. They're but, like taking batters into their own hands. Right. So the I, I, sh I guess I should probably clarify a building project in itself, building a city, building a place together uh, in and of itself would not have necessarily been wrong, but because they were doing it in direct defiance to his his design, which is go out and scatter, and then we don't we don't we won't spend a lot of time getting into it, but this is um, in history these became known as ziggurats. Ziggurats, which is this idea of a place of worship where you could go up and get to where heaven and earth kind of come together. Mm -hmm. So if that's their desire their desire is to build a place that will bring them there. What else does that tell us about their motivation? Not just rebellion. They're trying to get close to the Elohim. They're trying. It goes back exactly to the garden story again, where they're not happy with the position that they are given. We don't like being just a little bit lower than the Elohim, the gods. We'll pick on that in a minute. So we want to be able to make our way up there, remembering that Elohim, gods, is not a term that has to do with attributes. It has to do with what? Location. Location. We don't like this earthly realm. We want to be up in the heavenly, unseen realm where the Elohim are. That's what we want to be. And God says, no, you stay here. This is your boat, and go and spread out. So take a look now at then how what happens then as the story continues on. Somebody read for us verses 5 and 6. Let's see what God's response is here. Then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the humans built. And the Lord said, 
There is now one people, and they all have one language. This is what they have begun to do, and now all that they plan to do will be possible for them. So God comes down to see the tower. In your translations, most of your translations will have that word God. That is translation of the word Yahweh, the most common word for God, Yahweh, and it's probably in your text, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So this is Yahweh. This is referring to Yahweh coming down, right? He comes down to see the tower. How would you say, how would you characterize his response to that tower? What do you think, what would be his feeling toward that based on the rest of what you read there in those two, two verses? Is he happy? So you see where I'm going with it. Is he pleased? He's not pleased. What word might be a good way to describe? Annoyed. Annoyed. Grieved. Grieved. Frustrated. All these are good words. <laughs> Regret. Regret. Can I suggest a word? Yes. How about concern? Mm -hmm. What specifically is he concerned about? That they're doing the same things they were doing before. That's true. They are doing the same things before, but specifically within this context, well, he identifies. They devise a specific plan that will accomplish the exact goal he doesn't want them to. In other words, you got it. In other words, his concern is they will accomplish exactly what they're trying to do, and why and how is that even possible? Because he knows they're made in his image. We have that creative power, that idea. I know it gets scary when you talk about things like speaking something to in, into existence. I'm not, but this idea that we can creatively do, the, and he's actually concerned that they're going to do the thing they set their mind to, and then they're going to be in a really bad situation. I actually read this a little bit different. It's okay. almost like God is somewhat impressed with them for being able to do all this together. And then he's like, you know what, let's dial up the difficulty just a little bit more. Let's well, you're reading into the story just a little bit. We haven't gotten to that part of the story yet, but yes, I see what you're saying. But yes, his concern, and I think that's a fair word. Concern, he's concerned. They might actually do it. But so, I guess I don't see why he would be like, what's he? Why would he be worried? Like he is God. He can't just like. Why is he worried? We said he wasn't going to destroy him again. Why is he worried? We took that. We picked up on this thread before. Why is he? I shouldn't say worried. That's bad. Concerned. Why is he concerned? There's a thread. Goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three and verse fifteen. There's a promise that says, "Through the offspring of the woman." Mankind is going to come what? The Messiah. The Messiah, the promised one. If they are successful in what they are doing and they... Then they mess up the bloodline. They, the bloodline. Because yes. they're physically going to yes. be mixing with the elements. Exactly. See, now we're, we're starting okay. to pick up the, the threads here. Otherwise, it just feels like God is kind of impotent, right? He's like, I don't know what to do here, so I'm just going <laughs> to you know. No. He is really concerned. Right about what's getting ready to happen. So take a look now as we continue on the story. Somebody read now 7 through 9. And again, I want you to listen for the echoes, for the threads from other stories. Seven to nine. 
come let's go down and mix up their language there so they won't understand each other's language. Then the Lord dispersed them from there over all over all of the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore it is named Babel, because there the Lord mixed up the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them all over the earth. So what are what are some of the echoes? What's some of the threads that we can pull on that are going to connect us back to other stories. It says let's again. So let us, okay, let's be clear. What is that a reference to? Let me tell you what it's not a reference to. It is not a Trinitarian reference. I know if you're listening on podcast and you dropped your phone, it's okay. Pick it back up. Stay with us for a minute here because this is not Trinitarian language. At the table, we're very, it's very important that we understand that the text cannot mean to them, to us, what it did not first mean to them, right? So that idea is, although it's been floated out there, actually it's not. Let us, again, refers to? Yes, the council of gods that's described in Psalm 89, again in Psalm 82. We saw it in Genesis 1 in the creation story, in Genesis 3. We saw it again in Genesis chapter 9, 8, at the end of verse 8 into 9. And now we see it here with... This plural exhortation, let us go down, the council of Elohim, and just as in uh, chapter 1, verse 26 of Genesis, that plural announcement is followed by the action of one being only. That is Yahweh, God. So this hierarchical structure, we're going to go down, they take a look at it, but God, just like in Genesis, is the one, Yahweh, is the one who acts and only acts. And what does he do? He does what first? He misses up their languages. Which, how, what, like, what did he do? How, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, was it like a magical thing, or did he, like, have Elohim that, and, like, how did he disperse them? Like, were they physically grabbed, or, like, were they transported? I don't know what this looked like. He can do whatever he wants. I know he can. I'm just wondering how, like, what he can do. That is a perfect segue. Pause where we are in Genesis. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, because I think it actually answers that question. Deuteronomy chapter 32, chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. So listen. Listen, Linda. Listen, 32, 8, 9. When God most high, so that is Elohim most high in Deuteronomy. So when God most high divided up the nations when he divided up humankind he decided the people's boundaries based on the number of Elohim translated gods and then he puts this little piece in surely the Lord's property was his people and Jacob was part of his inheritance. And then the rest of that chapter goes on to imagine God as an eagle protecting his people and not allowing the, the foreign Elohim, the foreign gods, to interfere with his people. So the indication here is that he literally set them out. Here's the picture. He says, all right, if you're not interested in me being obedient to me as your God, with a simple command of just go out and enjoy all of my creation, be fruitful and multiply and scatter across the earth. If you're not interested in being underneath me, okay, fine. What I'm going to do is I'm going to separate you all. I'm going to move you to differing places. And I'm going to give you each a different language. And here's the key. And I'm going to give each one of you an Elohim to rule over you. 
regional gods. This is the where we get this idea of the regional gods that show up in the book of Exodus when we see the, the, the sorcerers empowered to mimic all of Moses' miracles. Have you ever wondered why they were able to do that? It wasn't smoke and mirrors, not what David and Kylie do. <laughs> this was really able to do that, right? The stories in the First Testament, when it was gods against gods, our God is bigger than your God, or when David is so worried that when he crosses over into the region of the Philistines, he could no longer worship God. Why? Because he's on foreign land. He's in a place where the gods that rule that are different. He can't wait to get back over to where God is, Yahweh is, protecting his people. Right? And if we went back and we looked at other places in Deuteronomy, you'd find out that not only does he send them out, he places one of those Elohim, the lower God, in charge of that region, in that area. So I think the answer to your question is he actually did separate them out. And the but number... Like physically? Physically sends them and says, you're over here, you're over here, you're over here, and this is your God. That's the picture that Deuteronomy gives us. This is your God. This is your Elohim. You're not interested in me, but for me, I'm going to keep a nation for myself. What I think that's interesting about that here is in the story back in Genesis, right, that nation has yet to exist, right? His people we call what? Israelites. Israel. Israel is our descendants of Abraham. Through Abraham comes this blessing. We haven't even been introduced to Abraham yet. So he's basically saying, I'm going to keep a people for myself that's not even yet there. Right? And they're going to be my new God imagers. And that's where the Messiah is going to come from. And through that line, that protected line is going to be the one that the Messiah comes. So now he can just worry about like controlling this, what's happening with Protecting his plan. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Protecting his plan. And so now as we follow this thread throughout the First Testament, it will make stories that seem so impossible to understand where we go, oh, that seems like really strange. Like, for instance, we talked last week about how the Elohim, I'm sorry, how the uh, Nephilim existed before the flood and also after, right? When we get to the story of the conquering of the land, we think it's just a random thing where God says, go in there and just wipe everybody out. And let's be honest, a lot of us really struggle with that idea that God just says, go wipe out everybody. But if you actually track the pattern of where they go and how they go, compared to the rest of the First Testament, you find out this is where those men of renown were set up. This is where those cities were that had all these powerful beings, right? And God says, go there and wipe them out. Go there and wipe them out. It's more like a strategic, you know, insurgent attack as opposed to wipe the whole thing out but we just read it as oh god doesn't care about any of those people in there well if you understand this thread you'll begin to see a much more targeted approach phil so the ones that he put over the other nations were actually already cast down or down on the earth the way you look at it they weren't part of the council because no no i would argue yeah so you said elohim so i kind of right so the number, the, the number that's associated with the Elohim in the First Testament is 70, 70, 70. That number follows all the way through. Some of you may remember that later on when Moses sets up his government, when God's people set up their government, it's Moses who represents God to the people and 70 elders. 
when you read all the way through, you get to the book of, you get to the Second Testament in the um, Sanhedrin, there were 70 priests that made up the ruling body. When you get to the book of Revelation, you'll find out there are 70 of these elders that when he's calling all of these nations back to himself, that's the promise of Zephaniah chapter 10. He's going to call all these nations that he scattered back together and he's going to use those 70 elders to do it. My sense is when he sent them out, they weren't necessarily falling yet, but over time, that power, that corruption led them to be in rebellion. Hence all these stories of basically in scripture, you've got this, this human story of following the bloodline of Jesus and the Messiah and what's happening on here, on earth, and you have this unseen realm that's happening above and the rebellion that's continually happening there, right? Trying to thwart God's plan of bringing all the nations back together. That's why some people look at the story of Pentecost and what happened at Pentecost when everybody was able to hear in their own language as the reversal of Babel doesn't work as well for me because that would indicate to me that the idea of um, language having a single language is somehow wrong because it had to be reversed. Think about it. When God brought that judgment and separated everybody out and gave them all the differing languages, think about how much more complex his plan suddenly became. Have you thought about that? All one nation, I mean, multiple nations, the League of Nations is written there in chapter 10, but they all spoke one, one language. After this, now what's happened? Multiples of languages. And now, so when we then now get a mandate as followers of Jesus, right, we're supposed to be image bearers to all of the world. Think about how much more complicated it is if we, did, if we only had one language. Think about how much simpler that project would be to bring all the nations together and our language separations just identify how different our cultures are. I mean, we use that term language and it's not just the words. It's everything that goes behind those words, the meaning behind those words, right? Causation and things, the way that we use it. So he complicated his plan in the process of doing this. So that table of nations that's found in chapter 10, that, uh, that dispersal of the nations is really his disinheriting of those nations as his people. And so now he has to call his own people. And I want us to quickly just look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. And we'll end here. 12, 1 through 4 kind of gives us, first four verses of 11 we read. Let's read the first four verses of 12. Now be listening for the string again. The, the, not string, is that the word? The echo, the, the, the similarities and or contrast between 12, 1 and 4 and what we read in 11, 1 through 4. Somebody, 12, 1 to 4. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. Abram left just as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. So what are some of the, 
some of those strands, some of those echoes that, and even contrasts that we see. It's no longer let us, it is Yahweh speaking directly. Yeah, he's pretty much had enough with the, I'm going to let them have their, I'll let them have their chance. They've now demonstrated over and over and over again that they're really not interested in that. So I'm going to go ahead and hand pick someone to be my new imager and through him accomplish my plan. So there's certainly that. What else? He's also telling him to go out and do this. So, yeah, he's basically saying the same thing I asked for everyone to do before. Here, I'm asking you, Abraham, to do the same thing. Go to a place that I have yet to show you. Any other strands that you see? Any other? Well, he said all the families of the earth. Not just this tribe, all the earth. So there's that mercy, that mercy being woven through. Even though you're disinherited and you've got your own gods leading over the air, I'm not ultimately going to abandon you because through this person, the entire world's going to be blessed. That's the Messiah who's going to bring all the nations back together. When he says, I will bless you and make you a blessing, he's kind of repeating his be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. There's a tone of hope and promise again. Yeah, hope and promise. Definitely. And protection. But notice where he, you probably wouldn't notice his, I'm jumping ahead here, but that, that description of where he is, God goes to the middle of where the rebellion was. It's basically the same area. And he goes, I'm just going to pick this guy right here. No relationship to God, Yahweh, whatsoever, right? He goes, I'm going to pick this man. And he says, I am going to make your name famous, famous or great. What did we read in 11, 1 through 4, the desire of man was? To make a name for themselves. So he, God, literally grants to Abraham, exact Abram, sorry, Abram, exactly the thing that everybody was desiring to do. So here's my question for you. How do we make a name for ourselves in a way that is in keeping with the way of Jesus? In other words, we as Christ followers have been given, right, the same kind of a mandate, right? We, we can still battle exactly the same thing that they battled all those years ago, right? God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, go out and fill the earth. He gave us a similar mandate in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. He said to us who are Christ imagers, what did he say? As you are going out into the world... Right? You remember the Great Commission? <laughs> Y'all looking at me? Yeah, you remember that, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them. He goes on and tells all of that. We have that same battle, right? Whether we want to be obedient to that command or not. So how do we make a name for ourselves, i.e., draw people's attention to the fact that we are imaging Christ in a way that mirrors the way God would want us to do it instead of what we just read about? We, the way I guess the way that the words that the Bible often uses is like putting on the person of Jesus and like taking it's essentially taking his name at, for ourselves. Like we you're, don't, you're the vessel. We don't make a name for ourselves. We take a great name. That's that beautiful language of adoption. Mm -hmm. So living up to our adopted standards of who we are, right? Living up to who we are in Christ. That starts with believing. Does it not start with believing who God says we are? We are his imagers, as imperfect as we are. 
But how do we image in a way that is God-honoring? Can I use that word? What are some other things that we can do? Let me give you a, a suggested way of thinking about it. Remember our definition of sin? Sin was culpable breaking of shalom. So what if we began to think about our task as imagers is, okay, so how do I restore, how do I give back a little bit of that shalom that has been broken? How does that change the way we approach things? Potentially. So if sin is the breaking of shalom, and we're to be imagers, we're supposed to be doing something that's the opposite of that, how do we live that out? We have to spread shalom. It's a good word. I don't know. Yeah, spread shalom. Mm -hmm. Establish, maintain, and share. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're, you're there. Keep going. Rebuilding shalom. <gasps> yeah, so if you think about it, every single day in every action that we have, if we could step back and ask ourselves, am I doing something that is restoring some of God's shalom through my actions, or is, some, is what I am doing doing the opposite of that? Is it breaking of that shalom? As simple as that is, it's not easy, but it's pretty simple, right? It's a way of thinking that I think we're supposed to take from a story like this. But that crosses all kinds of things. Our relationship with God, obviously, our relationship with others, and even our relationship with creation. Some of you know my friend Landrum. We spent some time down at the lake and uh, one of the things I enjoy about Landrum is um, his quiet, the quiet way which he goes about doing certain things and I've been walking with him for a lot of years and on every single walk that we go on out in nature or anywhere that we are, if he sees a piece of trash on the ground, a can, a bottle, an empty beer bottle, whatever else, he, no matter what he's doing, in mid-sentence he will stop. And by the time we are done walking, he has a handful of crushed up cans and bottles that he then puts in the recycling bin. And I remember saying, this past week I was with him and I'm like, you know what, I really appreciate that, you, that, that about you because... To me, that's one little piece of restoring shalom back. It's one little piece of saying, you know what? This is the, what God wanted for his creation, to have a whole bunch of empty beer bottles. Am I wrong in thinking that? Empty bottles and cans just <laughs> tossed everywhere. He picks it up, puts it in the recycling bin, and, and I think he's restored just a little bit of shalom. What if we could do that this week? Just every single day, step back and think to ourselves, the world needs a savior. The world has a savior. Sin came in. Sin spread throughout humanity. But through the Messiah, that promise has been fulfilled. Now our task as imagers is to help restore God's creation back to the way it was intended to be. May that be our goal this week. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here at the table again next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. We are saving a seat for you at the table.